What's up, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Game Ball. As you can tell, we're back on Zoom, and this won't last for long. This is a one-show type of thing going on. Uh, we had a miscommunication with the kid in the studio, so we have to do it over Zoom. But as always, we're here, and we're always going to be here twice a week, like always, regardless of the circumstances. And as you can tell, co-hosting the Drew or co-hosting the show is Drew. Uh, welcome back, Drew, and how you doing? I'm doing good. Glad to be back on. Glad that we're powering through, even without the studio. Just good. Just good to be here. Talk about some basketball and some football. Exactly. There you go. And as he mentioned, basketball and football are the main focus of the show. We're going to be talking about the NBA Finals, of course, as well as the NIL bill and ranking our top 10 wide receivers in the NFL. Uh, so to start things off, we have the Suns against the Bucks. Game three concluded uh, last night, and the Bucks came up victorious, now making the series two to one. And I personally believe that game four is the biggest game of the series. Uh, I think that if the Suns go up three to one, I just can't see the Bucks coming back from a three one lead. You know, that's only happened with the Cavs. And, you know, the Cavs had uh, LeBron James, the greatest, greatest player of all time. So Giannis might be making a case for being a top 10, but I don't think it's going to be possible for him to come back three to one. And also to mention, if the Bucks tied up 2-2, I don't think the Suns can win the series. I don't think they can win, you know, two more two more games against the Bucks considering the circumstances. So, first of all, how important do you think that Game 3 victory was for the Bucks? I mean, it was obviously vital. I mean, if the Bucks lose that game, they're down 3-0, and realistically, the series is over. And I feel like for Game 4, it's more important for the Bucks to win than the Suns to win. Because if the Bucks lose, like you said, they're probably not going to win the series. Like, they've got a very, very low chance. But the Suns, obviously, I didn't pick them before the finals. And I still feel good about picking the Bucks. But if the Suns lose, they still have two of the last three at home where they won their first two games. So I feel like the Suns still have a solid chance if they lose. But if the Bucks lose, it's over. So it's a must win. I expect the Bucks to come out strong in game four like they did with the home crowd in game three. Yeah, definitely. I think the Bucks the Bucks will win it. And Giannis looked unstoppable out there. He he was an animal. He's he scored uh, forty points in back to back games. And in the in the past, I want to say in the past 30, 30 years or so, or maybe maybe even the uh, entire NBA so far, only uh, three guys have had more forty point games in the finals, which are Shaq, LeBron, and MJ. So you know Giannis is already putting his name in some pretty heavy com uh, company. And good company. So, and like you mentioned, I mean, if they win this finals, they might go on and win another. And so, he might maybe he'll be able to cap some more forty-point games. But how important do you think the success of Giannis has been? Because I think it's been detrimental. I mean, clearly it's been absolutely vital for the Bucks, especially in the first couple games. I mean, if Giannis doesn't go off in the first couple games, they're losing those games by like thirty points. And obviously, he went off last game, forty points. He's absolutely carrying the Bucks right now and as we saw last game if the bucks get some help from anybody else on the team then they have a really good shot of winning i mean they got help from drew holiday and they actually started yeah. shutting down the suns with some actual defensive game plans and now they're looking a lot better and looking like they're actually gonna win but without Giannis, i mean i think it's pretty clear that if Giannis was injured like as bad as we thought he was when he went down against atlanta then the bucks would be have no shot in the series yeah. Well, something I want to say, though, is when you when you watch the game. So when we watched uh, game the first two games of the series and you can kind of tell during game three, the Suns, their primary like defensive set against the Bucks have been 
you know, let Giannis get as many points as possible. You know, who cares? We can't stop him. I mean, we all know Jay Crowder can't stop him. The only person that can't wrap his head around this is is Connor. But we all know Connor's nothing special right here. Uh, but I think I think it's a good game plan because personally, I don't think the the, the Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday can beat the Suns. If you're telling them to shoot the ball, they're they're not going to do well. Like when you look at Chris Middleton and how his production has been, he's he's he always has one bad game every three games. He's always bad. He's just he, there's there's no way around it. Now I think what you know Giannis is doing is incredible, getting 40 points a game in his past two games. And when he was you know come back for his first game, he had 21 points and efficient what 7-11 from the field. But man, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday better keep up the work because if they if they can't if they can get let's say 20 points on a consistent you know like shooting 50% from the field, the Bucks can't win it, man. I, I feel bad for Giannis. Because I don't think Giannis has has the guys around him to help him win right now. It's a, it's just a very weird situation. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, we saw. I mean, Chris Middleton hasn't played a good game yet in the finals. Well, he's not. He's been solid. Last last night, he had what twenty points or so. And I'm just saying, like from efficient. a standpoint, he hasn't that good. Drew Holiday really, to me, was the game changer last Holiday, night. Yeah, he was. Holiday he shot played great uh, last night, and he really. I think was the key difference in the game, along with a couple other things that we might get into later with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. But I think that just keeping going with the Bucks, I feel like Giannis and how you're saying like the Suns are kind of letting Giannis do his thing. I also think it's a good game plan because I mean, clearly it worked in the first couple of games when the Suns were hitting their shots. But also I feel like it's kind of a necessity because as we know, they don't have anybody who could stop Giannis, like, even if they focus a lot of defensive attention on him. Yeah, who, who they put on there? Mikel Bridges, Jay, like Jay Crowder's. Jay Crowder is just as good slash bad as a defender as P.J. Tucker. And I think, you know, you know what I'm saying. Basically, is P.J. Tucker is not as a great defender because he guards LeBron and KD, but he's also given up, you know, 40, 50 points a game. Like, Jay Crowder, he guards some of the better players, but he doesn't do anything out there. But... Uh, a focus I want to put out there. So, like like I mentioned, uh, this kind of refreshing everyone's memory. So the Bucks, the Bucks are down two to one right now in the series. I personally think the Bucks are winning the series in six. I think they can come out here and win four straight. Now, possibly I can see obviously them going to Game Seven because I don't think they, or I don't know if they'll win Game Five necessarily. I think Game Five will be a little, you know, it's going to be a hostile environment. They're playing in Phoenix after picking up two. But I think I think the Bucks can come out here and win in six games, and you know, the, the two games they lost, you know, as I mentioned, there was a great game plan set by the Suns, uh, you know, with, with letting Giannis just kind of get buckets. But I don't I don't think the Suns, the Suns were that much better of a team. You know, I think the Suns won game one primarily because of the fouls being called. And what I mean by that is, you know, we all know if you're playing in a home home court, you're going to get you're going to get more foul calls. The fa- as much as people don't want to say it, the fans have a huge they have a huge role in this. If they're booing the refs, if they're doing all this, the any any person out there will be thinking, you know, oh my gosh, am I making the wrong call? Everyone's booing me, right? So if you look at game one, they the, the Bucks and the Suns were neck and neck on shooting. You know, they both, you know, the Suns went 45 of 88. And I think the the Bucks went 44 of like 88. Like they shot similar in field goals. Uh, and they were both putting up the the, the, the stars of the teams were, you know, kind of neck and neck with point totals. But the biggest things, like I mentioned, was the fouls being called. The Suns shot 25 of 26 from free throw, and that was about 96%. Uh, 
Well, the Bucks only had 16 attempts and they went nine of 16 for 56%. So when you look at this, the Suns are not a better team. They're just getting more calls. Is that fair to say? Like, I think that's a very fair statement to put out there. No, I think that you can make an argument that two of the games in the series have been decided by calls. Now, whether they're good or bad, you don't really know. But like in the first game, I think especially, I mean, Devin Booker, I think went 12 of 12 from the free throw line in the first yeah. game. And that was like during a stretch where the Suns were really close and they started pulling away after all those free throws. And, and Giannis think- shot like 61% during that game too. So he was, I told you, half Giannis is in full effect right here. Yeah. No, that's another thing I was going to say is that the free throw efficiency thing is obviously the Bucks have worse free throw percentage because they have Giannis taking all the free throws instead of Chris Paul and Devin Booker. But Giannis actually made his free throws last game. He went 13 of 17, which I think was key. And another thing to do with fouls is that Giannis – just kept driving at DeAndre Ayton at the start of the game because DeAndre Ayton, he started the game, he had 12 first quarter points, and then they had to keep taking him out because Giannis kept drawing a bunch of fouls on him and the Suns were worried about him fouling out. So even though he had 12 points the first quarter, he only ended with 18, and he had to keep coming out of the game, and that was their primary Giannis defender at times. So I feel like the fact that Giannis was being physical and driving at him over and over again, and he was actually getting the calls this game, I feel like that was a serious difference. No, yeah, I agree. When you said Giannis was making a free throw, yeah, he shot 76%, which is good for Giannis to be able to shoot. And you're going 13 of 17. You know, that's only four misses for some guy who's supposed to be shooting 50%. That's that They're not going to foul him as much either. Uh, I also think you know, the Scott Foster effect was kind of in, you know, it was in full effect right there. But, you know, everyone, I, I'm worried. Like, people might be saying that the, the, the Bucs won this game because of the refs, but they won by 20 points. Like, it's not that much. Like, fouls don't – I mean, they matter, but not yeah, to that yeah. full extent. Um, but I, I just – the Bucks are just – I don't – the Bucks are just more talented. There's no way around it. Like, like I mentioned, I don't know if Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, the best guys around Giannis, per se, like best players put around them. But they, they can they can play defense still. And they can – they have their games where they're good. So, I, I just think they're they're more talented than Giannis. It can't be stopped. And, you know, Brooke Lopez has had – Obviously not his 30-point games, you know, like he did against the Hawks, but he's had a solid series. You know, he, he's been good. He's been a solid player, <laughs> solid role player. So I, th- I think that the fact that the Bucs are kind of, like, especially in game three, you could tell everyone's kind of contributing. I think it's helping a lot. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, Bobby Portis has actually. I, Bobby Portis had like 11 points. He's my guy. Big Bobby Portis fan around here. Huge Bobby Portis fan. Yeah, and I feel like. Chris Middleton is just waiting to break out and have like if the game if this series goes seven, I I guarantee that Chris Middleton has at least two games, twenty five plus points, if the Bucks have a chance to win this. Are you saying like in the next if they if it goes seven games, yeah, and so the they next play four, four games? I bet that Chris Middleton's gonna have a couple games where he actually contributes something on the offensive end efficiently. Yeah, well, I mean, Chris Middleton, Chris, Chris Middleton, Middleton is good. Yeah, he's good. He, got, I mean, he got eighteen game three right and shot six of 14 but this is what i was saying the bucks the bucks should have won game one in my opinion chris milton had 26 29 points 29 points 12 of 26 isn't an adequate is about 40 percent or so but he got 29 that's all that's good for him he shot five of 12 from three yeah i'd expect a couple games like that from chris Middleton to end out the series well another another point i want to make though with the Suns. It's just how overrated every player on that team is i i can't be bothered really chris paul is not that great. He, the mo- whenever he scores, it's after they have a lead. Devin Booker has been horrible in this series, in my opinion. I mean, I know he had game two, he had 
he went 12 of 25, 48% from the field. I, I think he had 30, 30 or so points. Solid, you know, that's a solid uh, effort. But in game three, he shot 21% from the field and 14% from three. Well, and uh, yeah, and he sat in the fourth quarter. I have no idea why that happened. And in game one, he was obviously horrible. 12% from three and 38 from the field. Well, why do you think he sat? I, I can't, I'm, I've been trying to figure this out. The game wasn't a complete blowout, and I don't think he played a single minute in the fourth. I don't understand I that mindset. He was shooting really bad. And I think this is Monty Williams' game plan of trying to get his head right. It's not something I would have done. I would have been like, okay. Do you think it's like motivating him? Yeah, I think if I'm Monty Williams, I would have been like, all right, you're probably going to lose this game. And I just put Devin Booker out there and see if he can shoot his way out of his shooting slump. But I think one reason Devin Booker could be doing bad is because he's played way more games than he ever has his entire career. Obviously, it's the first time they've made the playoffs, and now they're in the finals. So I feel like progressive fatigue just over this full season, including like even going back to last year in the bubble, that was clearly affecting some playoff teams this year, like Miami. And I feel like I, I wouldn't be surprised if Devin Booker is just really tired and like that's starting to like affect the shooting. These series, I know it's hard for, you know, it's hard to throw a guy in there and just be like, oh, go out there and do one of the finals. But this might be a little bit of a hot take for me, but I kind of believe it right now, at least how it's going on. I think Devin Booker, I mean, so we did a, you know, you weren't there for the show, but we did a top five, top or top five players under 25. And I ranked Devin Booker below Zion at four. No, I, I Devin Booker below Zion at five. And then Faxon ranked Devin Booker at four. And then Donovan Mitchell at five. But this, this series Devin Booker's having, I don't think he's better than Donovan Mitchell, man. I honestly, I fully believe that. I know this is a debate we'll probably have to have later in the show or another show, but Donovan Mitchell does so much. He's done, he's been the star of these teams for Utah and he's been doing well. Like I know they didn't have, they lost in game six and they blew a lead, but he was putting up, he was shooting efficiently. He was getting points. Uh, do you think, do you think this is a fair statement to say that the, how poorly Devin Booker has played this entire uh, playoffs in general in these finals that he's probably not better than Donovan Mitchell or is I feel like, I feel like that's a good take. I probably would have said that if I was on the show. I probably would have had Donovan Mitchell over Devin Booker. Like while Devin, Devin, yeah. Devin Booker's not doing nothing. I mean, it's close. Don't get me wrong. I still think Devin Booker's a very good player. I just feel like he got too overhyped like throughout the playoffs because people think that he was really the one like pushing through the Suns. And he's been good during the playoffs, and but he just keeps shooting worse and worse every single series, and it just keeps getting worse for him. Yeah. Devin Booker gets – yeah. Lot. He gets all this hype because he was good for where he was picked. But just because you're good for where you're picked doesn't mean that you're as a superstar. He's not a superstar now. Everyone thinks he's a superstar, and he's not. No, he's, he's not, not calling as a superstar. And if he, if he was, I know, you, again, going back to him sitting out the fourth quarter, I know you said Monty was trying to get him fired up in a way and whatnot. But if he was a superstar, he wouldn't, he he wouldn't, wouldn't be okay with that. He would go out. Like, you think Chris Paul – would sit down. Like, I know he's older, but he he would go out. I, it just Devin Booker is not doing it for me. And another another key point I want to highlight with the Suns' success, though, and, and when they're when they're doing well, though, they need to have players. They can't just have a. They don't have a superstar that can pick up the slack for them. You know, you look at the Bucks with Giannis, who could drop forty. They need a they need a third guy to go out there and also get them twenty. You know, when you look at Game Three. Right, Devin Booker was horrible, had 10 points. But, uh, but Jay Crowder, I think you said, had what? Yeah, he was, Jay Crowder was six or seven of three and had yeah. 18 points. That's incredible. You look at you look at game two, Mikel Bridges had 27 points. You know, it's just every every 
and then in the past series, you know, you obviously have DeAndre Ayton doing well. You have Jay Crowder, who also, I think he dropped 20 points in another game against the Clippers. They just need a third. They don't have a third guy, and they don't have the – they need a third guy to be successful, but they don't have a surefire third star. I think DeAndre Ayton has been doing well this year in the playoffs, but it's a little bit blown up a portion. And on top of that, they don't have a superstar that can go out there and get you, you know – 40 points and carry the team to a victory when everyone's cold. So I just don't see how the Suns even have a chance at winning the series. Yeah, no, I, I think that you make a good point about the fact they don't have anybody who's going to score a bunch. Cause I mean, Deandre Ayton, I think has been really good in the playoffs, but his best games are when he scores like 20 points and just shoots really well from the field. Yeah. Chris Paul, he's had a couple really good games this playoffs, but like, really like throughout his career and especially the last few years, it's more of him just, you know, providing for his teammates, you know, he's, he's the point God yeah. as people like to call him. And that's really his main thing. And his focus isn't scoring and he's not really putting up 30 points in very many playoff games. And so if Devin Booker isn't making a bunch of tough shots, then I feel like they're struggling to keep up the pace with the bucks, especially with the honest playing how he is. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And on top of that too, it's just Chris Paul, when he does put up a lot of points, like you mentioned, he's like a little games. It's when they have the lead or they're kind of pulling away. And that's not, you know, saying, you know, that his points aren't vital. But it, when, when I say you need a guy to carry, it's when the game's close, the game's neck and neck, and you need a bucket. You can go to Chris Paul to get that bucket, in my opinion. I don't think you can do it. I, I honestly don't. I know he's at one move where he takes one dribble and then steps to the right at the free throw and, and knocks on a jumper. But it, it can't be that hard to stop it. You know, I, I don't think they have a go-to guy. You need somebody that can shoot lights out. And get you know scored any at any point or can drive to the rim, but they don't have somebody to do that. Devin Booker has especially especially has not been that guy this year. How are you going to go or this series one of eight and one of seven from three? You just can't do that and be coined a superstar. But I don't know. I, I have Bucks and six. What do you what are you thinking? No, I think Bucks and six or seven. I yeah, like Bitcoin. you said, you I wouldn't be surprised Bitcoin. if the Suns steal Game Five at home. But I I don't think the Suns win this series. So I really don't. The only thing the Suns have going is they have a better coach. But again, when yeah, it comes to when it comes true. to the playoffs, you have to have the talented guys. Not yeah, coaching goes so far. Like you think you think late you think late in the game, Coach Butter, Coach Monty Williams is gonna drop a play to get a bucket inside. Now you just need somebody to drive to the rim and get you a bucket. But uh, now transitioning from uh, the NBA to now college sports you know you know as we all mentioned the nil everyone's seen the nil has been passed the name image and likeness bill uh, i spoke a little bit on one of my shows but not a ton and you know something i really want to look at is the full effect of the nil right now and so one of my main points was alex i'm going to say it again for you guys is the nil is going to help everybody right i think every athlete will profit some way or another whether that's becoming a barstool athlete and being a walking billboard for them for free I guess I think we need to hop on that trend. I think Game Ball should hop on that trend. Send some merch out, uh, or you know, a guy doing a, a posting on something on the story, or whatever the case may be. And then the top the top ten percent will be local deals. You know, the Joseph and Gattas of the world, um, the Ahmad Garners, really good corners, but not really nationally known uh, guys of the world will get the local deals, whether that be in Clemson, Cincinnati, wherever it may be. They'll begin the local deals, uh, card, you know, dealership endorsements, this, that, and the other. And then the top 3% where the guys actually need an agent, whether that's Steinbrook Sports with Spencer Rattler 
or DJ when he got with Gary V, and they're going to be the national faces. They're going to get all these national deals. Maybe Nike will give them an offer, uh, Diaz, whatever it may be. They'll be the national face of it. Uh, you know, maybe Bo Nix with Milo's. That's kind of a t- the temper scenario. But, you know, these guys are getting good deals. So I think it'll benefit everybody. But in my mind, I think the NIL will have had three effects on, on college sports. And I want you to let me know if you agree with any of these because I, I believe these three things with a passion right here. So the NIL will hurt college football completely. I don't think it's going to hurt any other sport, but it's going to hurt college football. All right. The second effect I have is the NIL will end up benefiting everyone. Everyone will, will be, like I mentioned, will have something going on for them. And the third effect is the NIL saved college basketball. So do you agree with all three of those or what do you disagree with? Well, look, I definitely agree that the NIL saved college basketball. I mean, as we know, there's been a big movement of guys, of big high, big time high school recruits going playing the G League or overseas. I mean, you see with Jonathan Kaminga and Jalen Green this year. And Isaiah Todd. Top, yeah, but like those two are just both supposed to be top five picks. They didn't play in college basketball. And you can you could only see it going more and more because these kids were having an opportunity to get paid like half a million dollars to play in the G League or have to go to college and not get paid. But now that they can get paid, I mean, that's going to be massive for college basketball. And I feel like the obviously the G League is going to suffer, but the G League was never really for those guys anyways. Yeah. And that's really not a big deal at all. Like, so now they're going to keep going to these big time programs. And one thing that I think is interesting is like, what you're talking about shoe deals with college basketball players? Because obviously, you know, like one big name that comes to mind, like Zion Williams. It's like when Zion went to Duke, and imagine if he could have had a shoe deal coming out of high school. Do you think that could have impacted where he went to college? Because obviously, if he goes to a Nike-sponsored college, he can't wear Adidas shoes. So if he gets an offer from Adidas, does that mean he has to pick an Adidas-affiliated college? Or if he goes to like a Nike-affiliated college, does he automatically have some sort of sponsorship deal in place with Nike? I think that's something that's interesting that I know that we've talked about before different colleges being affiliated with like different agents or it could be different brands, especially with Adidas, Nike, that sort of stuff. And those brands being partnered with colleges. And that could be one way to funnel recruits into certain places. That's, that's a good take. I, and I think that translates to uh, college football. You know, everyone knows Oregon. Uh, that's where the basis of the Nike headquarters are. And the, and the, the, the founder of Nike went to Oregon for college. And so Oregon's always been that pipeline of Nike gear and, the flashy stuff. That's why they're getting, you know, great players like Thibodeau and uh, Justin Flo. But, you know, I don't think that college football will have, or I think college football will have one of the bigger effects in my opinion, because if you, I understand the whole point of the, 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 the three biggest areas are the South, the people in the South, like the athletes are coming from the South, um, you know, Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, whatever. And then you have the guys who are, you know, in California, West Coast side will produce a lot of guys. And then there's going to be Texas where they produce a lot of guys. So if you're in Texas, you're on, you're, you know, you can go to UT, right? You can go to University of Texas and do well. If you're in the West Coast, you can kind of stay along the West Coast, go to Oregon. If you're in the South, maybe they want to stay in the South and go to the Georgias and the Alabamas of the world. But when you got a five star who's in the Northeast, maybe, and they're, they're a good player, I think that they might even judge their – and even people from the South, they might judge the decision on where they can get the biggest deals. Because if you look at it, I think Eric Gilbert might be a good example. 
right? He he went to LSU because he thought it was a good program. Wanted to remain closer home, closer home. I, I just don't think he liked LSU. And he ended up going back to UGA. And I know you're those guys like that, but do you think there's going to be more people that are saying, why should I stay in the South where I might get a local deal? Like Clemson, for example. I don't think Clemson will be relevant in the next five to 10 years. Because why would you go to the middle of nowhere, Clemson, South Carolina? I know Dad was a good coach and all, but why go there when you can go to the West Coast and go to Oregon and get a big six-figure deal already when you're at Clemson where there's literally nothing but the college? You know, I, I, I think this is affecting everything. Yeah, this is my opinion on it, is that I think that already established programs will be fine. I think there's going to be, like, more, like, super – like team style colleges now. So I feel like already established programs like Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, they're all going to be fine because they already have the, like if you end up, if you're a five-star and you go to Clemson or Ohio State, then you're going to be known already because you're going to a program that's on the national stage all the time. So that's going to be fine. But I feel like places like USC and California, because they've got LA, I wouldn't even be surprised if UCLA turns it around and places like Miami and Florida and places that have big cities with a lot more opportunities for like outside of college deals. I feel like those places are going to start getting a lot more recruits because they just have more opportunity to make money there while they're in college and can really profit off their popularity. Bringing that point up, you know, that I I think the, I kind of got away from my point that I was originally making because I went from the South guys, Northeast, but with that point, you know, when you look at, for example, Syracuse, right? Now, I know Syracuse isn't a big football program. Like, it's good. They had some solid years. Dino Babers is a good coach. But they've been kind of up and down. And, again, who knows how well they can produce the talent. But when you look at Syracuse, that's that's in New York. And in New York, you have NYC. And you have a lot of headquarters, a lot of headquarters, whether that be in the New York area or be in Connecticut. You have, there's a lot of headquarters where that's for um, like you know, sports like ESPN networks or just brands in general. So, do you think that teams like a Syracuse or maybe a Boston College, who's which, which is in Boston, you know, Massachusetts, will get more players that would surprise guys because yeah. of yeah. possible deals? That's kind of the about like UCLA, these like kind of like sleeping giants, I guess you call them, but like big schools in big marketplaces that aren't actually that good right now. They're probably going to start trending upwards and schools that are like pretty good but are in small places i think could start getting a lot worse like i wouldn't be surprised if the group of five starts because i feel like right now they're on a really upward trajectory i would be surprised if they start going down because i feel like oh. there's gonna be a lot less money if you go to a group of five instead of a power five team just because See, of the popularity that you get personally though when i look at the nil when i say it's gonna affect college football the most you know i think it's gonna affect where the the top 100 maybe top 200 prospects might go the five or maybe not 200 but the five stars and the four stars right the top 100 guys where they might go because they you know like you mentioned why should i stay in cincinnati ohio and go to uc when i can go to you know ucla right and they have the bigger deals and whatnot but a lot of those programs that are doing doing well they they land the occasional four or five star right but they don't usually – I don't think you're a three-star. I, I don't think a, a guy who knows he can't be a starter will go to UCLA when he knows he can be a starter at UC. So I understand your point you're making right here. But, you know, why would somebody – like, I know the money it might be, in, you know, intriguing. And it, you could look at Miami, you know, the, of Florida, right? And they, they had that deal with the boosters where they're saying, 
hey, all 90 players in your team, we're going to be $540,000 in total to the team. So if, if they do commercials, deals, and whatnot, so we'll get about 6000 a year. So that's obviously a treat because, you know, you could be a four-string kicker and you'll still get $6,000, right? But you got to think these guys are, yeah, it looks good, but six grand compared to playing time might be more, I think, I think it will have a bigger effect on guys. Because also, if you're doing well for a UC and you're three or four star, you're going to be bringing in more than $6,000 because you'll get deals with the local area. So I don't know. I don't think it's going to hurt them as much as you're saying. No, I don't think it's going to hurt their like, ability to recruit like three-star guys. I'm just saying that right now I feel like the top of the group of five is like pushing closer and closer to like the playoffs and everything like that. But I feel like with the NIL bill and people going to more of the same colleges, I feel like those programs like a Georgia. And if you get more like Texas and USC and Oregon, who just keep getting better and better, I feel like the top 10 say power five programs are going to just going to pull away more from the group of five. So I feel like quality will probably be better than like the middle of the pack of these power five schools, but like the top ones are just going to keep funneling in the same like top. I understand, I understand what you're saying with this, but I don't, I don't see guys going to these top tier programs when they can like, I don't know. It's hard because they can, they're not guaranteed much. If you're, I understand the pull of a four star or like a five star, for example, first of all, no five star, except that one guy who decided to commit to SMU, some wide receiver, which is beyond me. But no five-star will go to a group of five team, right? That's realistic. Yeah. No five-star has probably ever gone to a group of five like in the past, what? like or on a consistent basis in the past 15, 20 years. But when you look at it, you know, I, I think the most they can offer a guy to pull away from that group of five team is, hey, well, they're a four-star, for example. Hey, you can come here and you'll be getting uh, like a Miami offer where you'll get $6,000 a year at the minimum, they'll probably maybe $12,000 a year because I'm sure there'll be some more deals like that. So let's say $12,000 a year and then you'll be a rotational piece for the first couple of years. And then possibly, you know, you can take over as a starter your junior year. But, you know, I don't think that's going to be, like the money is not that big of a deal in my opinion. Because again, what UC can say or UCF or SMU or App State, they could say is, hey, you'd be a starter for, three years, right? And you'll make probably around the same amount of money if you're a good guy. If you're a good player, you're going to make probably more than that based off of just local deals. So I don't know. I don't think it will have a huge effect on a group of five. I think it'll just have a bigger effect on teams that uh, could possibly, like in the middle of the pack, SEC Power Five Conference. If that makes sense. Because I think they'll still they'll take talent from Tennessee or Ole Miss and they'll rather go to UCLA than Ole Miss. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, got yeah, I definitely agree that like some of the schools who haven't been that good in the power five and they're not in big time, like good locations. I feel like a lot of them could start falling behind for sure. Yeah. Well, the one thing though, that I, not, okay, I, I keep, this could, like, I, I could talk about this for, years like I, this is a very intriguing conversation and i'm interested i don't think it'll affect obviously this much for this year but next season it'll be a, be crazy to see how everyone kind of goes with the nil because i think it'll be full in effect with that 
I but, think honestly it's going to have a bigger impact on – I think basketball recruiting is going to be crazy. Yeah, yeah. But well, well, one last thought before – I mean, we can go back to basketball. But one last thought I want to share, though, is the only thing I really think about are middle-of-the-tier or lower-tier Power 5 teams pulling away from the group of five. That's the only teams I think it could pull away. But I still don't think people would sacrifice going to a team like a UCF, a UC, an SMU – even a San Jose State to go to a really bad like Arkansas, Vanderbilt, you know, uh, just bad teams like that. Along with Illinois, Illinois is not that great. I don't think they'll sacrifice that to go to a team that might offer them money, but and starting, but not a great future. You know. No, I, I, I agree. I think that like that middle of the pack, Power Five is definitely going to be is probably going to be overtaken by the top few teams in the group of five yeah. in the next few years. So you have any, any points you want to make about college basketball? Cause I, I do believe it saved the players from going to the G league. Cause everyone's doing it. Like you mentioned with Jalen green, Jonathan Kamunga getting $500,000, Isaiah Todd getting 250,000, you know, Isaiah Todd's stock fell off. Cause he's supposed to be, he was a top 11 recruit five-star going to Michigan. If he probably went to Michigan. He'd probably be a fifth, a top 15 pick. But yeah, instead, yeah. he's now going to be a second-round selection, which hurt him a lot. But the money is obviously more intriguing than that. Like, these kids probably come from nothing. So this getting some money right away is great for them. But how do you think it might change the recruiting landscape? Like, do you think the Dukes and the UNCs of the world will stay as powerful as they have been? Or do you think teams like Oregon, UCLA will have the same effect like they do in football? I think they're uh-huh. I wouldn't be surprised if talent gets more spread out than it normally is. Like, I don't think you'll see like three or four or five five stars in the same recruiting cycle going to the same teams because they're going to want to be the stars of their own teams. Like Cade Cunningham at Oklahoma State, for example, he might have gone to UCLA or something instead of Oklahoma State. But I feel like being an, a really, really good player on your own team because that way you're getting all the attention, all the publicity, and you can get make a lot more money than, say, being like Cam Reddish on Duke and being the third best player behind two big stars in Zion and RJ. I feel like if it was happening, Cam Reddish would probably have been more likely to go somewhere else just because he's not the big name brand that those two were at the time. So that way he can kind of make a name for himself and start making money earlier. Well, the only two programs that really seem to get multiple five stars and go arounds are obviously Kentucky and Duke. And now I question how Dukes might do because they're losing Coach K, but they're still a big name school. They'll be fine. Kentucky have had an off year, but Calipari will be fine. But to, I guess now that what I'm thinking about with this, people want to be even uh, in college in college basketball. I think it's going to this remain the same then, right? You know, I, I don't think guys are going to be going to join these super teams if they can't be the face of it. Yeah, I think it's going to be – because if you look at it now, it's always been this way. Like five stars have never really joined with multiple five stars. Or they, there might be two five stars going to a team. But it was when, – when Cam, RJ, and Zion all went to Duke, that was mind-blowing. That That's never happened before, really. You know, unless you look at the Kentucky teams with what? John Wall and all those guys. But realistically, that's never really happened. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like that's just going to keep – happening like more and more like people people keep pulling away from the this super team idea in college basketball so that way they can try and be the face of their own team because you think yeah like like i said earlier Cade cunningham even trey young when he was in college i think playing for oklahoma instead of playing for you know kentucky or duke or unc or whoever 
actually really helped him and would have helped him even more if NIL was. But when you look at the, these guys and, and college basketball, they net, they, for being honest, and even the G, I mean, not the G League, because I think G League can really ruin your stock because you're playing with be- guys, honestly, you're probably playing with guys who are better than you. You know, if you're 19 years old and you're a five-star, but going against some guys 26 who just got sent down from the NBA, he's always going to be better than you, and he's in his prime. But with college basketball, I don't think wherever, wherever you go is never going to hurt your stock. Like Ben Simmons, yeah. LSU, Cape yeah. Cunningham, Oklahoma State. You know, Markel Fultz, obviously he hurt his shoulder, but he went to Washington. You know, yeah. these guys are bona fide stars. And they still – like, I mean, Ben Simmons yeah. is the time. will be fine. I just I don't I don't think the the nair I don't I think college basketball that's what I was saying with the NIL is saved college basketball because it pulled the traction back to them rather than the G League other sports whether it's baseball gymnastics whatever it may be they'll make some money and who the heck are they there no there's like no offense to these sports but you're not going to get a six figure seven figure deal to go play there right rather than another school is that like like with the bars do athletes and stuff like that. I mean, you see some like college athletes like have massive followings on social media because they're doing something different and now they can actually make money off of like not just them being an athlete. Cause if you're like a like decent player, like a decent basketball player from some like okay college, obviously you're not gonna make a ton of that. But if you have like a super big social media brand and you can start profiting off of that, I feel like that's gonna be the major thing. That oh, helps definitely. Definitely. I mean, you look at destroying. He used to be, he was a kicker at UCF and then chose YouTube over UCF. And he was probably the main one, the, you know, a big vocal point in trying to pass this, the NIL, which was cool for him to do that. But then you look at Livy, who is some, she, she does gymnastics at LSU, but she has like 5 million followers on TikTok or something weird, like crazy. So she'll be able to make a profit off of that. There's a guy who played football at Elon, I think, and he has a million followers on TikTok. So he'd be good for that. And you see all these people also trying to become famous, like Trenton Smith or Trent Simpson from uh from Clemson. He's a linebacker. I, I'm pretty sure you know who he is. But he just created a YouTube channel and like two days ago, like as soon like or he put up yeah two days ago, and he has a thousand subscribers now. He's trying to make a little profit off of that too. So I I think the NIL is ruining. It's going to ruin college football, or not ruin it, but it's going to cause more of the powerhouses to remain the same. That are there's me the powerhouse is going to be way better than everybody else. That's the only effect we'll have. And I honestly, like, I, like I've been saying, I think that's going to ruin college because you know if you're of a powerhouse teams, they're just going to beat everybody in the path, and it'll be less competitive and fair. But basketball was fine. Every sport will be fine with, with the NIL. Yeah, definitely going to help the athletes out a ton, and I, I mean that's the main point of the whole yeah. deal. So I think overall, good move for the NCAA. Yeah, I agree, and. One more talking point I have for this, though, is Hersey Miller, right? He signed a $2 million deal, four years, because he's the son of Master P. But, hey, he's playing college basketball, so he must be pretty good, right? Well, he's going to Tennessee State. Oh, well, maybe he's a two- or three-star. Now he's a zero-star recruit. Man, he had, like, offers, though, from UCLA and USC. And you know why he probably had offers from there? Probably because his – I think it was either his brother or his cousin, Romeo, a.k.a. Little Romeo – played basketball at Southern Cal. And you know why they got him to go to Southern Cal? It's because they had De- DeMar DeRozan was his best friend and DeMar DeRozan wanted to play with him. So DeMar DeRozan landed him a a, uh, a scholarship to play there. But I'm going off topic right now. But what I'm trying to say, right, is so Hersey Miller is the son of Master P. Don't know who Master P is, but he is like $200 million net worth, rapper, entrepreneur, all this stuff. 
And he was able to get his son, because I guess he's friends with the CEO or something, of Web Apps America to get us or to offer his son a two-year or a four-year two million dollar deal to make 500 grand a year obviously as if you can do math like any other person but to do this and to it's just bring all this attention to it so a point i'm trying to the point i'm trying to make is how important do you think stars kids will be now because if you look at this and you have Master P saying, yo, Hersey, you know, whatever, here's all this money for Tennessee State. Do you think guys are like, or uh, I, I, I think it will happen. Do you think colleges will say, who the hell cares if he's a zero-star recruit? Let's get this kid's son because that guy has a lot of money and he can probably help us get some deals. Like Bryce James, for example. Bryce James, I don't think is that great of a basketball player. I, I know he's pretty young. Wish him the best of luck. But from what I've heard, he's not going to be a five, a four, a three-star. He's, he's just all right. And hopefully he'll get better. But do you think teams will say, like, you know, the Dukes of the Rob deals with Nike, but smaller schools that might have a deal with Nike might say, um, try to pursue, or not smaller schools, but a smaller power five team, for example, right? And say, hey, let's get let's get this guy on our team. You know, he'll mm-hmm. come here, but we'll have LeBron give all, you know, offer uh, like a deal from Nike to everyone else like so we'll land a bunch of five stars and they'll get nike deals too like do you think you know how famous uh kids parents are will have an effect on where they go for a sport see i wouldn't be surprised if it happens more than like before because obviously like it i mean it just it, it just happened but i feel like that's going to be a big thing that happens with famous people's kids and also i think just if you just have some super famous high school athlete, even if he's not that good, like Julian Michael, Newman out here. Julian Newman was born yeah, too, exactly, too late yeah, in life. Yeah. Like Julian Newman is not good at basketball, but he's really famous. So you never know. Some smaller school might just give him a scholarship and pay him some money, and then he can bring some clout to their team. Maybe Ge- try to get Geo some- Wise. I don't even know Geo Wise is, but he's yeah. horrible. He's like the worst version. I can't believe I'm saying it's the worst version of Julian Newman. But hey, he might get an offer from a team because he can bring some publicity. That's I don't know. The NIL is crazy to me. If that starts to happen more. Uh, I, I want. Now that you mentioned it, I want to be surprised. The NIL is just mind blowing to me. I think it's gonna have so that many is, effects. Yeah, we really could have a whole like five hour podcast. We might have, have to do one. Time. Like I think it might hurt some locker rooms too. It might divide some locker rooms. Yeah, imagine if you earned your scholarship and then you got Bryce James there just chilling on the end of the bench because his dad's LeBron. That's what I'm saying. And then you might have, you know, some divide where the best cornerback, let's say Andrew Booth for Clemson, you know, he's obviously not nationally. He's great. You know, he made some flashy plays, but he's not had the the hold on people like DJ has. DJ's getting all these deals from you know, Nike driving Ferrari around here now, all this fancy stuff, I bet, right? And you have Andrew Booth saying, bro, I'm like better than you probably as a position. I just play the wrong position. And it might have a little divide. It might have a divide with wide receivers and the target shares. But, I, you know, if you have any final thoughts, share them because I got to move on, man. got to move on. But, yeah, I, you know, I love the – I really do like the NIL. I'm glad it's around. I mean, hey, we're going to get an NCAA football game again. So that's a big plus for me. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But now moving on to the best topic we have for today's show, top 10 wide receivers in the NFL. So we each made a list of our top 10 wide receivers. And if you guys are here from TikTok, thank you for tuning in and listening. Uh, 
But here are the top 10 wide receivers that we're going to go for. So I'm going to name my 10th, your, your name, or my 10th, your name, your 10th. We'll debate if you have, you know, positions and where they're ranked. So number 10, I have Calvin Ridley. All right, yeah, uh, number 10, I also have Calvin Ridley. So I guess we don't have to say much there. If you want to talk any about Calvin Ridley. I was just going to share why I have Calvin Ridley there. Uh, you know, I have guys like, so the guy I've ranked a high above him, which you're going to hate me for. Is Amari Cooper, because I know you hate Amari Cooper, or, or you don't think he's as good as I think he is. You're lucky to put Mike Evans in here. All right, you're just lucky. because I'm No, I'm not lucky. Mike Evans just isn't a top 10 receiver. He's a top 15, there. but that's about it. But when you look at Calvin Ridley, the reason why I have him at 10th is he obviously did well in his uh, first two years in the league. He had about 850 yards receiving, had 10 touchdowns and seven touchdowns, and had a good catch percentage around 60, uh, 68%. And then obviously this final year, there's past season Coolio was out. He had he just turned up. He had 1,400 yards. He had nine touchdowns. His cash percentage went down about 63%, but he kind of took over, right? And he kind of showed that he's the guy. But the reason why I have him at number 10 is he he has, in my opinion, a small sample size. Because the the Falcons right now, they're they're just they love to sling the ball. They love to just throw the rock around. So of course he's gonna get all this yardage. I'm curious to see how he's gonna do when. He's the primary focus for 16 games, and especially early on, because a lot of these, all these stats he had came later in the season when the Falcons were kind of out of it and out of every game. So yeah, yeah. I also have Calvin Ridley. Obviously, I agree that obviously we need to see him a full season as the number one target now that Julio's gone. And I don't know. I the, when you said about his cash percentage, it's because he has like a new. He took on a new role in the offensive series. Their new deep threat. Mm-hmm. So uh, he had. The he was tied for the most 20 plus yard receptions in the NFL and he had the most 15 plus yard receptions in the NFL, which I think shows his ability on the deep ball, which I didn't really like see a lot of in college. I thought he, he was going to translate more as like you know, somebody who'll get onto later, more like Michael Thomas, somebody who can create some separation like with slants and under and medium routes, yeah. but he's really shown like that new side to his game, and I think that that's actually going to be what helps him keep progressing as yeah definitely and a guy i kind of left off as an honorable uh, honorable mention was justin jefferson i like justin jefferson i think he had a phenomenal year uh my only not concern i just I, i'm a big fan of just seeing more than a year's work of what you're doing and i know that's kind of not like i think justin jefferson if he puts up the same numbers as he did he can be he's going to vault up to maybe top six in my mind uh and he also had a great year I just don't see how Justin I, – I just like Calvin Ridley and what he's been able to do and maintain for the three years. And like you said, the improvements he's made. But now moving on to number nine. So I have Amari Cooper, and I love – I love Amari Cooper. I'm a Giants fan, and I am in love with Amari Cooper. Like, low-key. He's low-key kind of, kind of, you know, kind of good at what he does. Um, but I like him because he's had, you know, a 1,000 yards consistently. He's had some questionable QB play. I like Derek Carr, but – you know, he, he, Mark was kind of been the, was the main guy there. So he's been getting a lot of the, the coverage. He came over to Dallas. He's still a thousand yards with horrible quarterbacks and just, you know, a, a, just an issue with quarterback play. And even when there's guys there, he's managing to get open and catch these balls. So I like Amari Cooper for security. I know you don't have him at number nine. Who's your number nine? And why did you leave Amari Cooper off the list? All right. So Amari Cooper. I don't hate Amari Cooper. I think you, I do. You hate Amari Cooper. I think he's a top 15 wide receiver. I just want to put him in the top 10. But the only reason why I wouldn't put him in the top 10 is because 
a lot of times he can be inconsistent like throughout the season like he'll go through game like he'll go through like three weeks in a row where he catches like three passes a game and I feel like that's not exactly ideal if you're a top 10 wide receiver and I also think that he just loses concentration a lot of time and throughout his career he's had serious issues with drops and I feel like that's just not really ideal I mean I've got a lot of you, people. You say, you say he's yeah. had issues with drops, but I like to look at the past three years of these guys. Amari Cooper, his catch percentage has been 70 three, three years ago, 66 two years ago, and 71% this year. So I don't understand. I, I know he drops the ball, and I know catch percentage is more like it's not just yeah, drops, yeah. it's a, tar- a ball that might be overthrown and whatnot, but he's still reeling in a lot of these balls. No, he is reeling in a lot of them, but I'm just saying there's a difference between having a high catch percentage and having a lot of drafts. Like you can have both. Like, like Evan Ingram, perfect like, example. I'll talk about I have a stat later about a certain quarterback who has ter- or a certain wide receiver who has terrible quarterbacks, and they've just got so many like terrible passes to them that their catch percentage is a lot lower than you might think. Yeah. But let really, guess, let me, I already know who I already know who this guy is. Yeah, but yeah, so he's in my top five, not because he has got a high catch percentage, but because of he works well with what he has. And I feel like Amari Cooper. Well, Mark Cooper like- also works well with what he has. And to be fair, to be fair, I also think having uh, some of the quarterbacks that this guy you're mentioning has had are better than having a washed up Annie Dawn and freaking Ben DiNucci. Like who? Like you're telling me, you're telling me that you said Damari to do well with Ben DiNucci at quarterback? You, nobody could do well. His whole career. I feel like he could be better than what he is. Maybe I just have too high expectations for Amari Cooper. I'm not saying he's not good. I'm just saying he's not. But he's, he's a consistent – I understand your hate about consistent 1,000 yards, but he's a consistent 1,000-yard receiver with really – like with horrible QB play. Unlike Mike Evans, who's had a guy with Jameis Winston who isn't great, but he launches the ball like 50,000 times to him a game. And then Tom Brady. Amari Cooper, again, has a Dak Prescott, who's probably one of the more overrated quarterbacks – Derek Carr, who's very average. Ben DiNucci, who's Ben DiNucci. And then you have um, Andy Dalton. So, come on. Amari Cooper's consistent. Amari Cooper has had one season with bad quarterbacks. He's had Dak Prescott and Derek Carr. And don't act like you don't love Derek Carr. Dak Prescott is – Derek. I like Derek Carr, but he's not a – he's top, what, top 15, top 12 quarterback. And Dak Prescott is just bad. He's not bad. He's good. Dak Prescott's good. We, we might have to have a talk on a different podcast about your hatred for Dak Prescott. Carson Wentz is better. Carson Wentz is better. But yeah. moving on to number eight, Julio oh, Jones. Oh, wait, you're number nine. Who's your number nine? My number nine, A.J. Brown. I know you have him higher up on the list, yeah. so we can maybe talk about him more whenever we get to your spot on the list. But, yeah, I've I actually got don't have, I actually don't have A.J. Brown on my list. What? I don't have A.J. Brown on my list. I, I already know you do. But- <laughs> Moving on oh, yeah. to we'll – talk, We'll talk about this when we get to, get to my okay. spot, all right? Okay. Number eight, I have Julio Jones. And I don't think you – do you have him on your I list? I don't have Julio Jones on my list. Yeesh. I – look, Julio Jones, where, where I have him, right, number eight. You know, before, when I was making my list, I came in with this full mindset. Obviously, he's not a top five guy. And I didn't think he was a top ten receiver. I didn't think so. And because he, he, he was injured, he was very injured. Uh, or he's starting to become more injury prone now. He was dealing with a lot of his different injuries this past season, right? He played about what nine, nine games, I want to say. And even in those nine games, he was crippled, right? He wasn't doing well. He wasn't fully healthy. But he, and he had an off year. But his off year is 770 yards. That's not a bad off year in nine games. And obviously, his touchdown production his entire career has been really poor. He's only had one season where he's had 
10 touchdowns or more. Yeah, I would understand Julio Jones' lack of getting touchdowns. It doesn't oh, make any sense to me. I don't me. either. There was a year he had eight. He had, a, the year he had 1,800 yards, he had eight touchdowns. Yeah. That does not translate to me. Uh, Devontae Adams had, what, 1,800 yards this year and 18 touchdowns. 18 touchdowns. Yeah. I, I, I never understand it, but maybe that has to – I don't understand what that has to do with it. But, again, the Titans don't necessarily need a guy who can get them touchdowns. Right, they have AJ Brown maybe in the red zone. I think Julio should be better of a red zone threat. Maybe he will because he won't have to be the number one guy there. And they also have Derek Henry, you know. But Julio Jones has been every year for the past what five years or so, six years, he's had 1400 yards or more. That's incredible to see out there. And I know Julio again had an off year, but I think him being able to settle into his new role, not having to be the primary focus of against cornerbacks because they have AJ Brown opposite. And they also have to worry about the run. I think Julio will flourish. And I don't know if that's if you're gonna might say maybe that's based off of who he has around him or based off of him being good. But Julio's been a, a constant just animal. And I think the the discount him because of one year and see he's not top 10 is kind of mind-boggling to me. No, so this is my thing. Obviously, in the past, I I personally think we can talk about this on another show as well. I think you can make a really good argument. Julio Jones is a top five receiver of all time. That's I'm a, not debate. I'm not going to debate that. I mean, yeah. I think he's better than Larry Fitzgerald. I don't know if you yeah, think Larry's top five. But yeah, so I'd say that right. So obviously Julio Jones over his entire career, and I actually think that Julio Jones is in a really good position to succeed. I feel like really over his whole career has been a pretty good position to succeed because he's never really had bad quarterback play, and he always has had good options around him. And I think now with AJ Brown and obviously Derrick Henry, like you mentioned, that's just going to keep going. But I think. My obviously the number one concern is injuries and tuck and touchdown production for me. But even if he is, I I think he's gonna end up playing like probably 12 games this season. But I think that's probably for the best for him. I think in the playoffs with the Titans, he's gonna be really, really good because he's so, not gonna have all the pressure. I just think that you'll see you his production this year is gonna start waning because he's not gonna I think pers- personally, I think and I know that you also have AJ Brown right ahead of him. So we both think that he's not the best option on his own team. And if you count Derrick Henry as an attacking option, he's probably their third best option. So you're, you, you, Julio ranked, I'll say your top 10. He was my hardest person to leave out. Yeah. I had him in my top 10. Well, you haven't ranked out your top 10 because of how you, how you might fare, like how many games you'll play? Well, it's how many games you'll play and also just the, his expected production of this season for me, I think is going to be a lot lower than it has been in the past. Yeah, yeah. I understand that. So now, who's your number eight? My number eight guy is somebody who you don't have on the list. It's Keenan Allen. I like Keenan. I also like Keenan. And you're going to say he's consistent, right? He is consistent. So why is Amari Cooper? Like, Amari Cooper is consistent with worse quarterbacks. I don't think that's true. I think the last, like, five years of Phillip Rivers is way worse than Dak Prescott and Derek Carr. Hot take. <laughs> I don't think that's that much of a hot take. I think I think Derek Carr's better, but I think Dak was better than four for like four years. Okay, so why do you have why do you have uh, Keenan? Yeah, for me, Amari or for me, Keenan Allen, right? I'm not gonna compare him to Amari Cooper. I just think he's better than Amari Cooper. But for me, he only so he played 14 games last year. He had over 100 catches. He's basically a lock to have over 100 catches every single season. I think he's only had. How many targets does he usually get a year? 
like one i don't have the exact number i think like he had like 130 last year or something so he has a really high catch percentage but to be fair that is because he normally runs like shallower routes he's not really much of a deep threat but i feel like the way that he like played and helped justin herbert this year because obviously coming as a rookie quarterback that's hard and the way that he was like his security blanket throughout the whole season that he played i feel like that was something that was probably hard for him to adjust to because Obviously, Tyrod Taylor is supposed to be the starter at the start of the season. So it kind of just got thrown in. And I feel like adjusting to the timing at the start of the season, that's something that's tough, especially with a quarterback who has never played in the NFL before. So that whole learning process. And I expect Keenan Allen to be – like how I said how I think Julio Jones is going to be worse this season than he has in the past, I think Keenan Allen's going to elevate the season with a new year of Justin Herbert. I respect that. I respect that. Moving on to seven, I have Arthur Juan Brown a.k.a. A.J. Brown. Uh, so that's why I didn't say age. But, again, bad joke. I have some bad jokes about golf, but we'll save those for another show. Uh, but at number seven, I have A.J. Brown. And who's your seven? I have Justin Jefferson. All right. So we got a little storm brewing outside, guys. Very so if you're, hearing, if you're hearing some noises, if you're hearing some scratching, I just want you to know there's a tree next to my window. So it's just kind of scratching against it. Um. But I have, I have A.J. Brown at number seven because, like you mentioned, I think he's the number one option, right, on that team as a receiver. I think that he will get more targets because there's – I know Julio is there, but then you also remove Jonu Smith and Corey Davis, the two guys who are already taking away targets. Uh, and A.J. Brown has been very good with limited amount of attention, right? So you look at him and his first year. He started 11 games, right? He had – only 84 targets and went over a thousand yards, with eight touchdowns. And this past year, he started 12 games. He dealt with an injury, had a hundred targets for 70 catches and 1100 yards for 11 touchdowns. So with the, I don't want to say limited because he's still getting targeted. That's a decent amount of targets, but with limited amount for what a wide receiver one is for him to put up those numbers are pretty incredible for me, especially added on, you know, again, I don't like to read too much into touchdowns, Right, because again, you never know about the running back situation and all that. But when you look at it, uh, Derrick Henry's in there, and this guy's still getting 11 touchdowns in a season. So no, I, I, think AJ, and I think AJ will skyrocket this year. Yeah, I was gonna say, I wouldn't be surprised if AJ Brown is a top six receiver after this year. I mean, I've got him at nine, you've got him at seven. So obviously, we both think he's really good. One thing that I really think that stood out to me when I was looking at a bunch of stats for these wide receivers, AJ Brown. So out of all the guys who had like 50 or more receptions, like so they're actually like playing, he had the highest first down percentage, which means that he's actually like being effective with the ball because it's something that you hate to see whenever you're watching a game is receivers. It'll be like third and eight, and they'll go like seven yards and get tackled. And yeah. so it's really just like, what's the point of that catch? So he gets a first down on 79% of his catches, which I think is something that's actually really impressive, especially for – you know, a young guy who's still, you know, picking up a bunch of the tricks of the trade. I think he's going to get a lot better with Julio Jones. I mean, we know that he really, really wanted to play with Julio. Julio's kind of like his like childhood dream for a long time. And I feel like that learning from Julio, I feel like he's only going to get better this season. Well, and I mentioned the first Demperson, and she's had in the in the past two years, he's averaging or 17 yards to catch, which is really good at the yeah. as you can tell. But yeah, Justin Jefferson, number seven. I like Justin Jefferson a lot. I just, I like, the only reason why I left him off was sample size. 
but like I think he can skyrocket too. So yeah, no, I totally get the whole sample size thing. Like obviously, I can't really argue against it. You know, he's only played one season, but for me, I mean, he had fourteen hundred yards, eight touchdowns, and that's with you know Adam Thielen on the other side taking away a bunch of targets because at the start of the year. Adam Thielen was the number one guy because, you know, that's who Kirk Cousins is familiar with. And also he's got Dalvin Cook in the backfield taking a bunch, taking away a bunch of touches. And something that I actually didn't know when I was looking up A.J. Brown and um, Justin Jefferson, I was com- kind of comparing the two, is that, like, obviously Derrick Henry, you think of him as, like, a workhorse and he gets all these touches. He only averaged one more touch per game than Dalvin Cook did, which I thought was kind of crazy. So... You know, I'm thinking, oh, A.J. Brown, like, doesn't get the ball, like, a lot just because of that run game. But I feel like Justin Jefferson kind of has that same thing going. And the main thing that, for me, is that in single coverage, he had, like, the most yards per target. He was the second highest grade receiver on pro football focus, which, you know, if you're listening, you don't know. It's it, That's a really good site for stuff that they can actually track this and just yards and stuff. And he was the second highest rated plural football focus wide receiver overall from last season. So really, I think you could make a solid argument that he could be higher, but for, but obviously with sample size, you just don't know yeah, how. He's exactly. You see like my biggest concern is you see rookies every year have a great rookie year and then just fall off the face of the earth and never exist again. You know, I know this is a, a, a worse comparison to make, but Calvin Benjamin, I know he faces like weight issues and all these stuff, but he had an incredible first year. And ever since that first year, it kind of just was a downward slope and just fell off as a guy. So, I, you know, I, again, it has to do maybe with uh, his health and whatnot, but I, I just, I don't like looking at rookies. And I, I mean, he had a great first year, but I don't like looking at rookies and saying, oh, he's going to be a top 10 guy again. It's just, it's hard for me to look at that. Uh, now moving on number six, I got Allen Robinson. I love Allen Robinson. I was debating moving up a little bit higher because he's been doing so well with such inconsistent quarterback play his entire career. And now he finally is a capable quarterback. I know it's a rookie. It's, that's, that's bad to say that a rookie quarterback, quarterback will probably be his best quarterback he's had his entire career. But he's been, he's been amazing with what he's had. He's, he's been getting, you know, in the past three years, he's been getting around 1,200 yards a game or uh, 1,200 yards a season. Now he had about 800 um three years ago, but he was missed some games. But I, I like what Allen Robinson's able to do with such bad quarterback play. And he's just a talented guy. So who's your number six? Yeah, yeah. I also have Allen Robinson on my list, but he's a little bit higher. I've got Michael Thomas at number six, which I feel like is a little low. It's a little low for me when I was ranking him. Like I kind of thought he was gonna be higher. I really went back and forth between him and Allen Robinson between five and six. But for me, it's just obviously last year he was injured. And the year, I mean, the year before he had, oh, he was amazing. You can argue one of the best years. 1,800 yards. I mean, he broke the catches record. He had 1,700 yards. He was absolutely incredible. The only thing that worries me is that I feel like with Drew Brees, that was the ideal quarterback for Michael Thomas's play style, as we know, as his nickname, Slant Boy. Uh, you know, I, see, I understand that, that, but he's doing a really he, deep threat. And I feel like, Jameis Winston isn't exactly the ideal quarterback for him, especially compared but to what Drew Brees was. I understand that whole that whole standpoint. And I I look, you could ask anybody, you could ask Drew right now. Everybody knows I hate I hated Michael Thomas. And I thought he was horrible. You know, I'll share a little bit of it later. I ranked him at number four in mine. 
And I hated Michael Thomas so much. Now, I didn't think he was that great. But you kind of look back and watch some of the games, look at the stats. He's getting 11 yards a catch. He's putting every year he's had about what at least at least what 1,200 yards, and when he's actually been getting solid playing time. Yes, he got hurt last year and he kind of fell off, but he had what 500 yards. But it was he didn't have a great season. And I understand the whole take about Drew Brees and transitioning James Winston. And I don't think you can take the the the, the wanting to heave the ball out of James Winston. You know, you can only take him out of Tampa Bay, not the not the mindset. But but off of that point, I think that he'll be able to. It's more of like a game plan standpoint. Slants and such and vertical and you know four verts, th- those are made by the coaches. And I think Jameis will be able to find Michael Thomas. I don't think Michael he I think he'll have a little bit of a fall off, but he's still gonna be I think he'll get twelve hundred yards. So I wouldn't either, but yeah, I mean hey, the number he's my number six wide receiver. I hope he gets twelve hundred yards. Yeah, we'll see. I, I I just I like Al Robinson a lot. Uh and he's been able to do phenomenal things with such bad quarterback play. Or, yeah, with such bad quarterback play. I just what, – what Michael Thomas has been able to do is just mind-blowing to me. Drew Brees – even Drew, even look at Drew Brees. I know the slants, and that's how he passes. But he's he's not the greatest quarterback, you know what I mean? So, I, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's hard to knock Michael Thomas, especially, too, since he's playing against some better – some pretty good defensive backs out there. Like, he would play against Desmond Trufant when Desmond Trufant was actually, you know, doing well. he played against the Panthers, and the Panthers always have good good, uh, good corners. And you look at Tampa Bay, who really kind of flipped the switch in the secondary these past couple of years. So, I, th- I think what Michael Thomas is doing is pretty amazing. Yeah, but, yeah. I just I'm a little bit concerned about the injuries and the new quarterbacks. That's why I haven't ranked a little bit lower than I thought I might have at the start of this. So number five, I have Stephon Diggs. I think Diggs has just been amazing the past couple of years. And obviously this year with Josh Allen, that connection, you could arguably say that Stephon Diggs transformed the Bills from, you know, maybe making a wild card spot to being one of the top dogs in, in the AFC. Yeah, no, I actually have Stephon Diggs ranked at four, but I agree. I mean, he really, ele- to me, this season really elevated him into that top tier wide receivers. I feel like if we'd have done this last year, he probably would have been around like 9, 10, 11, that sort of range. But I feel like this past season, I mean, hey, he led the NFL in yards and he led the NFL in catches. Like, what more can you really say than, I mean, he had the, I mean, statistically, he had the best wide receiver season last year, or at least, yeah. you know, top two or three. Yeah, I so agree. He's definitely in that top tier. I have him at four. Yeah, I, I have him at five just because I want to see another year from Josh Allen. But, I also believe that he is with the perfect quarterback for him. You know, he's able to do all that stuff. You get a thousand yards with Kirk Cousins, who's not good. It's that simple. He's just not that good compared to Josh Allen. And the fact that Sevon Diggs is also able to transition so easily from, you know, moving from one team to another and just kind of work it out with Josh Allen so easily. I think it's, I think what Stefan is doing is incredible. So I, he's definitely a top five guy. No, I completely, my guy at number five is Allen Robinson who, yeah, I know you've already said, but uh, just a couple more things about Alvin Robinson. I mean, he's, I just think he's great. I'm going to be honest. I think he's great. He's obviously had terrible quarterbacks his entire career, and hopefully Justin Fields is good, so that way we can actually see how good Alvin Robinson is. But like I was saying earlier, or like I alluded to earlier, he's had the most inaccurate targets in the league by an absolute mile compared to any other receiver. So even though his cash percentage isn't as good as, you know, you might expect from somebody who's ranked this high, 
that's not really his fault. That's more the quarterbacks and their ability to actually give him catchable balls. And also when he actually has the chance to catch balls, he has the third lowest drop rate in the league and he has the most contested catches in the league. So I feel like he's underrated in terms of like, I didn't think I was going to put him top five before I started really digging into it. And I feel like most people who like watch the NFL probably wouldn't top, put him top five, but I feel like once I really looked at it, I mean, I, he's definitely in the upper echelon of receivers in the league, especially based on what he's had to deal with. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I agree with that hundred uh, percent. Number four, Michael Thomas, I already kind of spoke on him, but I think, you know, what he's been able to do in his entire career is incredible. And he might take a slight fall off with Jameis, but not, not a huge one. And you're number four. Yeah, my number four is obviously we've already talked about him and just a great season by him. And who knows if he has another season like that, he could be pushing into this this top three, who I feel like the top three from beginning are pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. It's Mike Evans, Michael Williams, and uh, McCole Hartman. So. Oh, for sure. That's what I was thinking too. But no, my number three, I'm assuming it's your number three, because the top two guys are in a plan of their own. But number three is Tyreek Hill. In my yeah, opinion, he's Tyreek Hill too. Yeah. When you look at it, you know, Tyreek's been good. He's fast. But I think a knock on him is he's playing with the best quarterback in the league that yeah. fits with him well. And, you know, that's not saying that he's not good because you can have a great quarterback and obviously not be great. Like, look at Sammy Watkins, for example. But with Tyreek, you know, he his, his catch percentage is solid, 67%. Um, he averaged, he's only averaging 73 yards a game. I think my issue with him is he's kind of a boomer bust guy. He's kind of the Chris Middleton of the NFL where he, he's not as inconsistent, but he can get you 230 yards a game and then get you 50, you know, because he, he's more of a, he's a one trick pony in my book. He's fast. He's obviously good at route running, but it's mainly, he's as fast. He has a spurs and he, he can take a deep route better yeah, than in the game. I feel like that's what sets him apart from, you know, DeAndre Hopkins, Adams, who we both have, you know, first yeah, and second, yeah. is that he's not as well rounded a receiver, but again, like you said, he's, pretty much the perfect wide receiver you could put with Patrick Mahomes. He had 15 touchdowns last year, which I is kind of surprising for a guy like his stature, like you would have thought that he'd probably have less, but with more yards. And I don't know, obviously just, I mean, his speed, he's probably, I mean, if you probably asked NFL players who they least want to play against their number one receiver would probably be Tyree kill. Cause I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, you saw, you saw Jalen Ramsey. I think he ranked his top three and he put Tyreek in there. He left off Devontae Adams, which is probably pretty mind-boggling. But I also think it's because he didn't he hasn't really played him that much. Um but I, I like Tyreek Hill. I like what he's able to do. Uh he I think what he, his skill set separates him from the rest of the pack, but limits him from being a top two guy. I think that's pretty fair to say. Like he can't be yeah, mentioned yeah. the same breath as Devontae Adams in the up, but he's clearly better than Stefan Diggs and Michael Thomas. Yeah, and he's kind of like one B tier behind the two one A guys. Exactly. Now, looking over to our top two. All right. So I thought I wrote something down. Now, I guess I lost my, my statistics. So this is not this is not promising. But my number two guy is Devontae Adams. Your number two is my number two D-Hop. is Hopkins. And then obviously the, the my one is D Hop. Your your one is Adams. So we're not gonna say why I ranked them. I guess you know, so why why do you think Devontae Adams is better? The only thing I could really find with Devontae Adams in my opinion, to say that he's better because it was close to bait for me was he got more touchdowns and he played less games. In the yeah. yeah, for my thing is he obviously, you know, he led the league in touchdowns. He had 18 touchdowns. And it's not just like a one-time thing with him. 
Like I feel like sometimes you'll see receivers, they'll go out and have one year with a ton of touchdowns and the next year they'll kind of fall back to the mean and go with like half as many touchdowns. But Devontae Adams like consistently gets 10 plus touchdowns a year. He's had 15 touchdowns a couple of years ago. He's just been great. He's been super consistent. Uh, and yeah, he didn't play as many games as DeAndre Hopkins last year, but he still put up almost as many yards, like on a yards per game basis. Devontae Adams was better. The thing for DeAndre Hopkins, for me, that, I mean, obviously they're super close. But like DeAndre Hopkins has better hands. I mean, he's he had the lowest drop rate in the NFL. He was top 10 in contested catches. And the main thing that I think that you could make an argument for, for DeAndre Hopkins that I'm sure you're about to say is uh like the court the difference in the yeah. quarter. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear. Like, you know, I'm going off that. We all know so Deshaun Wallace and Kyler Murray, great quarterbacks. Deshaun, arguably a top five. Kyler Murray, top ten QB. Aaron Rodgers, arguably the best quarterback in the NFL. Or not best, second best behind Pat Mahomes. Yeah. Right. He could be argued to be the best because he just didn't want MVP, right? So I think it's pretty safe to say that. First of all, in the course of his career, Diop has played with horrible quarterbacks like Tom Savage. Right? Come on, it's not great. But you know, I, again, my biggest thing is I look at the past three seasons that these guys have had, and DeAndre Hopkins has been incredible. He got fifteen hundred yards three years ago. Then he obviously got fourteen hundred yards this season, and the year in the middle of the year he had twelve hundred. He's he's putting up yards. Uh, he's not having the amount of touchdowns that I would like to see. He had eleven, seven, and six. That's not incredible. Uh, but he's not, you know, pulling a Julio Jones out here. And <laughs> the biggest thing to me, though, is to look at D-Hop and what he was able to do with his quarterback this, this past season with Kyler Murray, right? And he had 160 targets, which is a lot of targets, 115 catches. He had about, I want to say that's like a 72% catch percentage. Um, like you see, it's great hands. 1,400 yards, six touchdowns, good numbers. And De- Devontae Adams put up better numbers, right? 1,800 yards, which is obviously more, 18 touchdowns obviously way more but I think what DeAndre Hopkins brings to the table is he's consistent he's always going to be great and if you put him with a better quarterback he can put up numbers like Devontae Adams and I don't think you could take Devontae and put him on Houston or Arizona and he'll have the same effect as DeAndre Hopkins has brought to these teams for me I think that like the counterpoint is that the wide receivers that Devontae Adams has played with have been worse than the wide receivers that DeAndre Hopkins played with. I feel like in the passing game, Devontae Adams has to shoulder a bigger load because obviously we know that the Packers, other wide receivers, are like at like five steps before Devontae Adams' level. Like whenever they're in the red zone especially, everybody knows the ball's going Devontae Adams and he still put up over a touchdown a game this year, which I think is absolutely incredible. And for me, he took an like an extra step up this season in like his catch percentage. So he went from like mid to low sixties the past four years, all the way up to 77% this year, which I mean, that jump, I don't know whether that's sustainable or not, but just that jump up this year is crazy to me. Now, like the, just overall, I mean, my, yeah. better season. see my kind of point to that though, is based off, you know, you see the wide receivers that he's played with. Who was DeAndre Hopkins played with? I know he's a, he has Will Fuller, who's good, but he's always hurt. He plays like five games and he's out. Then you look at Arizona, and he's played with what Christian Kirk and Larry Fitzgerald. Those aren't great receivers. I mean, they're better. Than that. 
They're, they're both bad. Alan Lazard, you know, Marcus Scantley and whatever his freaking name is, MVS. They're probably just as bad as Christian Kirk. They're way Five worse. games of Will Fuller and Larry Fitzgerald. And when he's like old and has a, you know, a cane when he's out there. I think the whole touchdown idea, I understand. And you could say, well, D Hop, you know, has less touchdowns. If anything, with D Hop getting, you know, six touchdowns with Arizona, that has to do with the guys he has. Kyler Murray can run the ball in. They obviously fed the ball to Kenyon Drake. And then with Green Bay, they have Adam Jones. But Arizona had about, I think, eight touchdowns more from rush, more, eight more rushing touchdowns than what Green Bay had. All right. And I understand you could take the A and you add the six and, you know, that gives you what 14 is still is still less, but the, the whole touchdown thing, it's more of a just you know, also the red zone. Like Green Bay gets the red zone way more than what Arizona has done. Right. So there's more there's more opportunities to score in Green Bay than there are in Arizona. And you add in the uh, the rushing touchdowns, it's pretty pretty obvious to me that touchdowns are, yeah, I understand, you know, are important. But you also have to look at how many times they've reached the red zone. You know, when you look at Arizona, they had they had uh, 48 touchdowns this year, right? 48 from rushing or, you know, excluding defensive and all that, but offensively, 48. Yeah. And Rodgers alone had 48 touchdowns, you know? So they're reaching the red zone more. So you had a higher percentage of touchdowns on their team. Okay, but it's red zone. You have to look at the path. Well, no, you have to look at the passing, right? You have to look at when you're throwing 26 touchdowns to compare to 48, you know, 48 is obviously more opportunities than 26. Well, yeah, but you if you're, tell, you're telling me if DeAndre Hopkins had 22 more opportunities to score from passing. He wouldn't have scored 12 more touchdowns. He would, probably. There's more opportunities. So. There's way more opportunities. Name your top 10 again before we log off. All right, I'll go. Wait, do you want me to go ten to one or one to ten? Uh, whatever you want. I'll go one to ten. So I got Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins, Tyree Kill, Stephon Diggs, Allen Robinson, Michael Thomas, Justin Jefferson, Keenan Allen, AJ Brown, and Calvin Ridley. All right, I'll go ten to one. I got ten Calvin Ridley. At number nine, I got Amari Cooper. Eight Julio Jones. Seven AJ Brown. Six Allen Robinson. Five Diggs. Four Michael Thomas. Three Hill. Two Adams. And number one D Hop. So that wraps up today's episode of Game Ball. 